One of the things that is extremely difficult for us to do on this side of the cross and resurrection of Jesus is to understand how foreign those thoughts and events were to the minds of the first century disciples of Jesus. Today, if someone were to ask you why Jesus came to this earth, you would probably say something like this. Well, he came to die on the cross for our sins. It might shock you to hear this, but that thought would have never even slightly entered the minds of the disciples. You see, when we read about the life and ministry of Jesus, we do so from a 21st century Gentile perspective. And we know the end of the story. But the disciples had a completely different perspective in their lives and as they walked with Jesus. To begin with, they were Jewish. That means that they saw things from the standpoint of their background and their cultural upbringing. Whenever we hear the term Messiah, we think of the one who died on the cross to take away our sins or died on the cross to pay for our sins. The fact is, that would have been the furthest thing from their minds. Whenever they heard the term Messiah, they would have thought of words such as king or conqueror or vanquisher. And we shouldn't criticize them for thinking such thoughts, because God's word given to them in Hebrew Scripture has an immense amount to say about the Messiah being a conqueror, a vanquisher, and a king. So that was their grid through which they saw Jesus. They knew that God's word promised them a kingdom, and they knew that it was the Messiah who would bring in that kingdom. Therefore, when the disciples came to the conclusion that Jesus was the Messiah, it is not surprising that they assumed the kingdom was about to be established. After all, John the baptizer had come announcing the kingdom, did he not? Repent, he said, the kingdom is at hand. Jesus had come preaching the kingdom. His message was the same, repent, the kingdom is at hand. So it shouldn't be shocking that the disciples had high hopes that Jesus was going to conquer all of their enemies and bring in the kingdom at any moment. There is very little doubt, virtually no doubt, that that's what was going through the minds of the people on Palm Sunday when Jesus made his triumphal entry into Jerusalem. They thought this was the day when Jesus was going to begin his revolution. That's why they were waving palm branches Palm branches were the symbols of freedom and liberation. From almost 200 years earlier, they had become a national, if not nationalistic, symbol of liberation. It would be similar to the stars and stripes of the American flag today, which is the symbol of freedom for people in the United States. That's what the palm branches meant back then. That's what they symbolized. So when people began cutting down palm branches, waving them around and spreading them on the road, it was their way of saying, here we go. The Messiah is going to begin the revolution. He's going to conquer all our enemies and give us freedom. That's why the people spread their clothes on the road before Jesus. That was an ancient act of homage reserved for high royalty. They were convinced that Jesus was the king. 
or at least they hoped he was the king. As a result, they thought it was time for him to overthrow Rome. After all, they knew he had the power to do it. They had seen him in his power. They had seen his power over demons, over storms, over disease, over sickness, and even over death. Thus, it all made sense in their minds. Hebrew Scripture promises a Messiah who will bring in a kingdom. Jesus claimed to be the Messiah. He proved he had the power to be the conqueror and the king. What else is there? What is he waiting for? The people will get behind him. They'll rally behind him. Palm Sunday is proof of that. That's the way the disciples would have thought. As a result, when Jesus began to talk about being conquered, not the conqueror, when he talked about being conquered by his enemies, rejected by the religious leaders of Israel, and killed by the Romans, the disciples were stunned. They, they were shocked beyond description. They were blown away. They were floored. They, they, it just made no sense whatsoever in their minds. It would not be an overstatement to say that they were traumatized to the point that they couldn't even hear or think clearly. Their minds simply could not grasp or accept what Jesus was saying when he announced that he was going to be unjustly murdered. Can't be. The conqueror can't be conquered. It made no sense to them whatsoever. So they completely rejected the idea as utter foolishness. I don't know what kind of mental gymnastics they played to get around it, but when they would hear Jesus say something like that, somehow they dismissed it, they excused it, they said, maybe we don't understand what he was saying. That is why Jesus had to tell them about it time and time again. We come to another one of those times in our text in Mark chapter 9. So if you aren't already there, please turn with me to Mark chapter 9, the second book of the New Testament, the Gospel of Mark. Our text consists of verses 30 through 32 in this ninth chapter, so please follow along as I read these verses for us. Chapter 9, verse 30, Then they departed from there and passed through Galilee, and he did not want anyone to know it. For he taught his disciples and said to them, The Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of men. And they will kill him. And after he is killed, he will rise the third day. But they did not understand this saying and were afraid to ask him. This seems to be the first time that the disciples even heard what Jesus was trying to say to them about his impending death. He had started talking about his death at the very beginning of his ministry. They should have gotten the message by now. In the Gospel of John, chapter 2, when he had cleansed the temple for the first time, which was almost, in a sense, the kickoff of his ministry. His baptism uh, uh, you know, propelled him forward into ministry. Then he went out for the temptations. And then sort of the first public act, if you will, was the the cleansing of the temple, and in relation to that, in the interchange that followed, he spoke of the destruction of the temple of his body. In chapter 3 of John, he told Nicodemus he would be lifted up, 
which was a technical way of referring to crucifixion. In John 6.51, he said he would give his flesh as the bread of life for the world. In John 10, he said he would lay down his life as the good shepherd. So he has said this repeatedly, but the disciples never got the message. Therefore, Jesus became more specific about the issue as the time got closer to his death. Back up one chapter in Mark to chapter 8. Let me remind you of what we saw weeks ago in verse 31. Mark tells us, And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed, and after three days rise again. He spoke this word openly. Then Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But when he had turned around and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter, saying, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not mindful of the things of God, but the things of men. You see, the only way you will be able to understand what's going on here is to go back in time and put yourselves in the mindset of the disciples. Mark tells us in verse 31, he began to teach them. He had already mentioned the fact of his death several times. I quoted those verses earlier from John 2, John 3, John 6, John 10. He had already mentioned his death, but now he begins to teach them about his death. Why at this time? Well, you may remember that back in verse 29 of this 8th chapter, the apostle Peter asserted the greatest confession ever uttered by any man. When Jesus asked his disciples who they thought he was, Peter answered as the spokesman for the group, and he said unflinchingly, you are the Christ. And Matthew tells us he also says the Son of the living God. That was no impulsive utterance given as a knee-jerk reaction to some highly emotional event. No, Peter and the other disciples had watched Jesus and contemplated Jesus and studied Jesus and thought about Jesus for over three years now. They had seen him. They had heard him for all that time. And they came to the settled conviction that this man was no mere man. He was the promised Messiah and the Son of the living God. That was their resolved conviction, their resolved conclusion. And Jesus affirmed that assessment by saying in Matthew's gospel, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. This is in some ways the high point of the gospel of Mark. Mark chapter 8, verse 29. Jesus has been working with his men for almost three years to convince them that he is the Messiah, the Son of the living God, and they have finally come to believe that beyond any shadow of a doubt. Mission accomplished. Jesus knew from day one that he was eventually going to hand off his ministry to these men. He knew the day would come when they would have to carry on in his absence. They didn't know that, but he did. So he worked tirelessly to get them ready for that task. And one of the primary ways he had to get them ready was to convince them deep in their souls that he was the Messiah, the Son of the living God. And with this statement here in chapter 8, verse 29, it is clear they have finally arrived. That means it was time for Jesus to turn to the next 
major aspect of his life's work, which would be the cross. But that's what threw the disciples such a curve. They didn't see it that way at all. Their perspective was this. Listen, if we have finally gotten to the point of understanding that Jesus wanted to bring us to, then the next step is to bring in the kingdom. After all, they were going to be his right-hand men. Jesus said that. He said to them on one occasion, in the regeneration, when the Son of Man comes in his glory and sits on the throne of his glory, you will be on 12 thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. Jesus had told them that. He's basically saying, you're going to be my right-hand men. So they understood that much. They were going to be his key men in the kingdom, and that's why he took so much time to train them. So their thinking is this. If they are where they need to be in their understanding and preparation, what is holding things back? That was the way they were thinking. If Jesus is truly the Messiah, as Peter has just stated in verse 29, and we know from Matthew's gospel, Jesus affirmed it as accurate and true. If Jesus then is what Peter has just stated, let's get going with the kingdom program. That was their perspective. And from their point of view, there was no reason to doubt that they were seeing things correctly. But they weren't seeing the whole picture. The day will come when Jesus will bring in the kingdom, as he taught us to pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Jesus will bring in the kingdom, but before that day can become a reality, the king had to die. And that is why Jesus began to tell his disciples, to teach his disciples about that necessary reality. He reinforces that reality again in our text in chapter 9. Let's go back over to the ninth chapter. So Mark tells us in verse 30, Then they departed from there and passed through Galilee, and he did not want anyone to know it. That sounds strange to us at first. Why would Jesus not want anyone to know he's there? Why would he not want people to know where he is? Jesus didn't want anyone to know it because his public ministry is basically over now. And the next major event, now he's going to be training his disciples for a little while yet, but the next major event is the cross. So Jesus didn't want anyone to know it because he could not afford to get held up or sidetracked in his mission. He was headed to Jerusalem to die. They were still up in Galilee when Jesus repeated this announcement. They had not begun the trek south to Jerusalem as of yet. But Jesus knew that when they did, things would get even more hectic. It is very likely, beloved, that when Jesus finally left Galilee and headed south, since he was heading there to be there for Passover, he wasn't the only one. Many, many Jews from Galilee would have been doing the same thing Jesus was doing, taking the same route. And in fact, if you read the gospel accounts closely, it seems that as Jesus left Galilee, a crowd was with him, and the crowd just kept growing and growing and growing and growing, which is why when you come to the event we call Palm Sunday, there was such a huge throng of people. They didn't just show up that day out of nowhere. 
There was a huge crowd of people following Jesus. He knew it was going to be that way. He knew things were going to become hectic. He knew that people were going to be pressing against him and pressing on him and wanting from him and all of that. Thus, he tried to get through to his disciples now rather than waiting till the last minute. He didn't want anyone to know that he was there in Galilee. He wanted his disciples to understand that when it was time to begin the journey to Jerusalem, it would be a journey culminating in his death. And so verse 31 tells us, for, this is why he didn't want people to know it, he didn't, he, he, the, the public aspect of his ministry was done. He just could not afford time-wise and purpose-wise to be derailed in any way because he had to do what verse 31 says, for he taught his disciples and said to them, the Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of men and they will kill him. And after he is killed, he will rise the third day. Before Jesus specifically said something about his death, he mentioned the fact that he would be delivered up or betrayed. This is the first mention of his betrayal. He already said in John 6, 70, Did not I choose you, the twelve, and one of you as a devil? But the disciples didn't have a clue about what he meant when he said that. They had no clue whatsoever. They had no idea that one from their own midst would be the man to hand Jesus over to his enemies. They knew Jesus had enemies. And they probably even knew that some of those enemies wanted to kill him. But it never crossed their minds for a minute that it would be one of them who would hand him over. They didn't even know that one of them wasn't a genuine believer. They were convinced that they were all on the same team. They're all partners. And why should they doubt that? Since they had all gone out together in teams of two for their short-term work. There, there is no reason to believe, beloved, hear this. There's no reason to believe that Judas was any less effective than the other disciples in that ministry. If he had been the only one unable to cast out demons, the only one unable to heal sickness, the only one who had been unwilling to proclaim repentance, he would have stood out like a sore thumb, but he didn't. He went right along with the others and may have, may have even assumed that the others were following Jesus for the same reasons he was following Jesus. And what was that? He was following Jesus for completely selfish reasons. He figured that if Jesus did overthrow Rome and bring about a revolution by establishing a new kingdom, then he would be in a very good position as one of those in the inner circle. He's one of... He's one of the Messiah's men. That would give him access to power and money and authority and position, prestige. Now, the other disciples probably had some similar motives, but theirs were mixed with some good motives of genuine love for and belief in Jesus, not Judas. Not Judas. His sole motive for following Jesus was for what he could get out of the deal. That is why when he finally began to understand that Jesus wasn't going to set up the kingdom, he decided to get out of it and get whatever he could. So he sold Jesus for some pieces of silver. At least the other disciples did love Jesus, even though their motives may have been mixed. Judas was in this thing for himself. 
John 12, 6 tells us that he was the treasurer for the group, and he regularly stole from the money box. But the other disciples, please realize this, the other disciples had no clue that he wasn't really one with them in their love for Jesus. No clue. Even on the final night, in the upper room there in Jerusalem, when Jesus announced that one of them would betray him that very evening, none of them suspected Judas. Even when Jesus dismissed him from the Passover meal, none of them suspected Judas. The Bible tells us the others thought that Jesus had told him to go give something to the poor because it was Passover. They never had a clue about his real character until, and try to imagine the shock when Peter, James, and John saw this one. They never had a clue about his real character until he walked up to Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, accompanied by soldiers, and betrayed Jesus with a kiss. No clue in their minds. Therefore, when Jesus said this here in verse 31 about being betrayed, being delivered up, the other disciples would not have suspected Judas any more than they would have suspected Thomas or Nathaniel or John or anyone else of their number. So as a gentle shepherd who knew how much his disciples could take, how much they could process, Jesus doesn't unload the entire dump truck on them here. He doesn't say that one of them will be the betrayer. Notice that. He simply says he will be betrayed. That would have been disturbing enough. The very word betrayed implies that what will be done to hand him over will be done by someone somewhat close to him. So Jesus wants them to understand he wouldn't be captured by aggressive means. He would be betrayed into the hands of men. But the unjust tragedy wouldn't end there because the next part of this verse, verse 31, says, and they will kill him. They will murder him. And by the way, that's what the crucifixion was. Because, of we, know, because we know the spiritual benefit for us, Jesus paying for our sin, etc., it is very easy for us to forget that the crucifixion was an unjust murder. That's what it was, an unjust murder. Jesus says, I will be betrayed, I'll be delivered up, and they will kill the Son of Man. And after he is killed, he will rise the third day. I am confident, I am certain that they, that they did not hear the second part of Jesus' statement when he mentioned the resurrection. How do I know that? When Jesus said he would be killed, I, I'm convinced their minds completely shut off. I say that because the next verse says they did not understand this saying. And Matthew adds, they were exceedingly sorrowful. If they had heard about the resurrection, I don't think they would have been so sorrowful. Now, they may have been confused about what it all meant, but at least they would have had some idea that although he would be killed, he wouldn't stay dead. So I don't think they heard him say he would be raised up. Their world collapsed when they heard Jesus say that men would kill him. Now, we can understand this kind of thing happening. 
Because we, we are aware of this kind of thing happening with people in their own lives when they hear about some tragedy and someone is trying to tell them something and they say something to the effect that, you know, your, your children were in a car accident and it's very serious and it's so traumatic they, they don't even hear the rest of the, the Their mind just shuts off. That's not an uncommon scenario. So we can relate to what the disciples went through here. When, when Jesus said he would be killed, That was so overwhelming to them that their world just collapsed. Their world was shattered at that point. All of their hopes and dreams and longings and aspirations were bound up in this man. They had been with him now for about three years. Some of them could probably still remember when they first met him, when they were intrigued by him, impressed by him. It all began in John chapter 1. Turn over there with me for just a moment. Let's go back to how it all began for these men. This chapter records the very first days of Jesus' public ministry. We pick up the story in verse 35 of John 1. John tells us again the next day, John, this would be John the baptizer now, not the writer of this book who was John the apostle. So again the next day, John the baptizer stood with two of his disciples. The two disciples were Andrew and the apostle John, the writer of this book. The three of them were standing around talking together, probably about the events of the previous day, and all of a sudden Jesus comes walking up. Verse 36, and looking at Jesus as he walked, John the baptizer said, Behold, the Lamb of God. In other words, there's the one I told you about yesterday. That's him. That's the one I was talking about. Verse 37, the two disciples heard him speak, and they followed Jesus. You see, what you have here is two God-fearing Jews who followed John the baptizer until they were pointed to Jesus the Messiah, then they followed him. And verse 38 tells us, Then Jesus turned, and seeing them following, said to them, What do you seek? Jesus asks them this question to cause them to wrestle with their motives. What are you seeking? What are you looking for? Are you seeking a political ruler who will help you overthrow Rome? That's what most of the Jews wanted, but that's not what Jesus came to do. So he asked them, what are you seeking? It's obvious they were seeking something. Remember, the the disciples were from Galilee. This event that we're reading about takes place way down south in Perea, which is on the opposite side of Judea, over on the east side. So that means they had left their homes in Galilee to go down to Perea, They were following John the baptizer. They were intrigued by his message, interested in his message. And now they turn to follow Jesus. So Jesus asked them why. What are you seeking? What are you looking for in life? It's fascinating to realize that these are the first recorded words of Jesus in this gospel. You could almost say it this way. The first question of Jesus to humanity as he begins his ministry is, what do you seek? What are you looking for in life? What are you looking for? Notice their reply. Verse 38. They said to him, Rabbi, 
which is to say when translated teacher, where are you staying? He said to them, come and see. They came and saw where he was staying and remained with him that day. Now it was about the 10th hour. Jesus invites them to observe him. Come and see. John tells us that this was the 10th hour. If this is Roman time, which John seems to use throughout his gospel, this would be 10 o'clock in the morning. So basically, Jesus invites them to spend the day with him. They had heard John the baptizer. They wanted to get their hearts right. John preached a message of repentance. Now they're following Jesus, and Jesus says, spend the day with me. It's fascinating to me that John remembered the exact time. Remember, John wrote this gospel maybe 60 years after this took place. But he would never forget the day, the very hour he met Jesus. And Jesus transformed his life. He could still remember it 60 years later, 10 o'clock in the morning. I remember it. I remember it well, John is saying. Verse 40, one of the two who heard John speak and followed him was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother, Simon, and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which is translated the Christ. And he brought him to Jesus. You can't help but love Andrew. He probably spent his entire life being known as Simon Peter's brother. That's the way he's referred to in verse 40. Did you catch that? It says there, one of the two who heard John speak and follow him was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. That's the way he was known. But in spite of that, Andrew wanted to tell his brother about Jesus, knowing full well that as soon as Simon Peter entered the group, he'd end up running the group. That's just the way Peter was, so overpowering. But that didn't matter to Andrew. The way verse 41 is worded indicates that Andrew had a seeking heart because he says, we have found, we found the one we've been looking for. We found the Messiah, the anointed one, the Christos. We found him. Verse 42, Simon Peter's brother Andrew brought him to Jesus. Now when Jesus looked at him, he said, you are Simon, the son of Jonah, or John. You shall be called Cephas, which is translated a stone. This is incredible. In this very first encounter, Jesus reveals his plan to transform Simon into Peter. Cephas and Peter, by the way, are the exact same name. They both mean stone. Cephas is Aramaic. Peter is Greek. Jesus planned to take this man named Simon and transform him into a Cephas or a Peter. And that's exactly what Jesus did over the next three and a half years. Verse 43, the, the following day, Jesus wanted to go to Galilee, and he found Philip and said to him, follow me. Now, Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, we have found him of whom Moses in the law and also in the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. So Jesus picked up another follower, another disciple. His name was Philip. And we are told Philip was from the same town as Andrew and Peter. It is very likely that most of the disciples knew each other growing up. From the way Philip responds here in verse 45, it seems that he also had a seeking heart. He was seeking for the Messiah. And when he found him, the first thing he wanted to do was to tell his friend. Verse 45, Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him 
of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph, and Nathanael said to him, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, Come and see. Nathanael couldn't believe the Messiah would come from such an insignificant town as Nazareth, a town that is nowhere even mentioned in the entire Old Testament. A town with such a lowly reputation. Nathanael couldn't believe this to be the case. But Philip doesn't argue. He just says, come and see. See for yourself. Check it out. Verse 47, Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said of him, Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom is no deceit. By the way, in the other Gospels, Nathanael is called Bartholomew. And here Jesus says he was an Israelite without deceit. In fact, the way Philip approached him in verse 45 indicates that Nathanael was a searcher of the Scripture, and that comes out even further in verse 48. Verse 48, Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? Jesus answered and said to him, Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Now, it's obvious from what occurs later that it doesn't just mean, oh, well, I happened to walk by while you were sitting under the fig tree. There was something unique or miraculous about it by the response that comes. But one of the interesting things about this is that we do know that in that day and age, the fig tree was the place that many people used to go to to just get away from, you know, the houses in that day were small. You couldn't hardly uh, read. If you, wanted to, if you had a copy of Scripture, you wanted to read Scripture, you wanted to meditate, you wanted to pray, you couldn't usually do it in your house. You'd have to go out under the fig tree. It's very possible that's what Nathanael was doing. And Jesus saw him there. In verse 49, Nathanael answered and said to him, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. Nathanael was so overwhelmed by what that Jesus knew him and had somehow had seen him that he exclaimed, You're the Son of God. You're the King of Israel. In verse 50, Jesus answered and said to him, Because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater th things than these. And he said to him, Most assuredly, I say to you, hereafter you will see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending upon the Son of Man. So for some of the disciples, several of the disciples, this was their first introduction to Jesus. This is how it all began. It took place about three years prior to our text in Mark 9. So much had taken place in those three years as Jesus poured his life into these men. And now in Mark, he tells these same men he's going to be killed, murdered. No wonder they were exceedingly sorrowful. Now back to Mark 9 as we wind down. Back to our text there in Mark 9. <clears throat> Mark tells us in verse 32... That after Jesus had made the announcement he would be betrayed and killed, rise from the dead, verse 32, but they did not understand this saying, and they were afraid to ask him. Why were they afraid? Well, we're not told, so we can't be dogmatic. But Jesus really never gave them any reason to be afraid to ask questions. I mean, they ask him questions all the time. So I'm not sure that it was that they were afraid of his afraid of him, like, well, we dare not ask him a question. I think they were afraid to ask him because they didn't want to know. They preferred to live in a state of denial instead of accepting the implications of what Jesus was saying to them. 
Why was the death of Jesus on a cross such an unacceptable or confusing thought for the disciples? In addition to their assumption that he would establish the kingdom right then, death on the cross was an unthinkable notion to them because that would mean that Jesus was cursed by God. In Galatians 3.13, Paul quotes Deuteronomy 21.23 by saying, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. When Jesus was crucified, placed on a tree, hung on a tree, he became a curse of God as he bore our sin. That's what 2 Corinthians 5.21 is referring to when it says, God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Now all of this was way beyond the disciples' understanding at this time. That may be why Jesus doesn't even specifically tell them here that his death will come by crucifixion. Back in chapter 8 and here again in chapter 9, he only tells them that he will be killed. He doesn't tell them how. But we know the end of the story. We know that he was killed, murdered, and we know it was by crucifixion. And because we know what the cross accomplished in the plan of God, it is glorious to us. But beloved, listen, it wasn't glorious to the people of the first century. 1 Corinthians 1.18 says, For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. To say that God's Son accomplished salvation or anything good by dying on the cross was utter foolishness to the people of the first century. It was a complete oxymoron, a contradiction in terms. Even the disciples couldn't see anything good that could come out of the death of their beloved teacher. So when Jesus spoke of his death, they were exceedingly sorrowful, even to the point of not hearing him say that there would be a resurrection. Beloved, we, we glory so much in the death of Jesus that we could easily miss the fact that there is a sense in which it was the ultimate tragedy in all of human history. The only man who never did anything wrong to anyone and who did unreciprocated good to thousands and thousands was betrayed into the hands of sinful men who falsely accused him, who treated him brutally. He was unjustly condemned, nailed to a cross where he became accursed of God. And through all of that, he provided for our salvation. May we never, ever forget the price that was paid for our forgiveness. Have you received that forgiveness? Just because provision has been made doesn't mean it's automatically yours. It isn't yours if you've never personally received Christ by faith. It is not yours unless you receive it. Let's bow as we close. Father, as we contemplate this just this fascinating brief text in Mark's gospel, how Jesus was trying to get his men to understand that once they headed to Jerusalem and once they arrived in Jerusalem, it would result in his betrayal. It would result in his murder. 
but also it would result in the resurrection, which they apparently did not hear or did not grasp. But Father, we, we know on this side of things, we know here in the 21st century as we look back, that this was your eternal plan. As the book of Revelation says, the lamb slain from before the foundation of the world, it was your eternal plan for Jesus to die. To die for our sins, to die as our substitute, to die to take your holy righteous wrath. And so as we contemplate the cross in all of its facets, the eternal nature of that event, the eternal in the past and eternal in the future nature of that event, and yet as we think of, of the unjust nature of it from a human perspective, what they did to Jesus without cause, without reason. Lord, may we... May you enable us to expand our comprehension of that magnanimous event in human history. The death of Jesus in our place as our substitute, as your provision for our sin. In whose powerful name we pray, amen.